0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. The world's largest asset owners control approximately $61 trillion in institutional assets worldwide. They are exposed to the whole economy in good times and in bad times and they unequivocally support stakeholder capitalism. Michael Ferrari is Chief Science Officer and Chief Data Scientist at Engine Number no. 1, an activist shareholder of major corporations like ExxonMobil. Today, we're discussing why Engine number 1 is asking companies to move beyond business as usual and focus on the material, environmental, social, and governance, that's ESG issues, that impact business performance, profitability, and society over the long term. Hello, Michael, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast.
1: Hi, Paul. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to to have you join us today. And we're just gonna jump right in here. How is engine number one's approach to ESG differentiated from mainstream ESG analytics?
1: Okay, so uh, to start off, uh, the way engine number one looks at our, our ESG investments is we're really kind of moving away from what we're considering mainstream ESG analysis. So if you think about what is kind of common parlance in the ESG world, it really follows this rankings and rating system. And we're really trying to move away from that and moving more towards understanding value, both as it's represented financially and materially. So we have built what we call our total value framework, which is really our lens through which we evaluate investments. And it looks at the financial piece, of course, is important, but we really try to look at the material impact of the investments. Um, an obvious side uh, piece is related to the environmental one, but it obviously goes beyond environmental. But if we just use environmental as an example, there's a lot of, if we kind of look at what the rankings and ratings, you know, kind of quote unquote system um, evaluates, it's very difficult to discern, does that really have a material environmental impact? So we're trying to look at data. I and mean, some data is kind of mainstream environmental data. Some might be differentiated data. And we really try to assess, you know, how does this really materially impact climate? How does this really materially impact the environmental variables that we're trying to improve performance around? So it is a different lens. And I think, you know, I the way I try to think of it is, ESG really tends to bucket a lot of these variables. And we try to tell a story that weaves these variables together. So it's not E versus S versus G. But when we look at value, we really kind of look at this contiguous theme that goes and that incorporates all of these pieces to a more holistic approach towards an investment that we may be interested in.
0: Now, Michael, you've mentioned climate as one of the areas that you focus on. Can you give us uh, examples? Uh, that are focused more on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and perhaps alternative data.
1: Sure, um, I'll start with the last one first. So, uh, alternative data is kind of a buzzword in finance, but we really just call it data. Um, you know, it, it's kind of it got this special place in in fintech that, it, that it's considered alternative. But a lot of the data sources everybody still has their hands on. So, I think when people used to start to talk about alternative data, it was things like satellite data, credit card data, geolocation data. But if you really kind of look at where portfolio managers are using this data, it's not necessarily alternative anymore. Everybody's kind of looking at this. I think one of the interesting things that we try to do is when we consider alternative data, it's really more about alternative methods. We try to look at these in ways that probably are not necessarily apparent. So when you think about credit card data, the first thing you think about is analyzing receipts and trying to understand foot traffic and flow and what that might mean towards um, the bottom line of a particular company. But there's other ways to use that data as well. So we try to, you know, without giving too much away, but we try to look at some of the same data, but we just try to look at it in combination with other data, and you know, what individual pieces of insight can we pull out that might not be apparent just kind of going through that that lens that has the blinders on. So um, that I mean, the alternative data piece, I think it's again, it's a, it's a broad discussion, but we really try to focus on you know some of these, uh, I think these areas that are a little bit more specific and i think one of the things we'll talk about a little bit later is kind of this big data versus smart data idea so that kind of ties into the approach that we're looking at um when we think about dei and i kind of compare and con- contrast dei and climate for climate we have uh there's a lot of data out there right most of the data that's environmental data it's recorded from an instrument it's recorded from a sensor um or it's estimated based on data that would come from uh you know from an instrument or a sensor so you know it, there's all a uh, a very wide variety of data that we have at our disposal. The challenge there is, are we using the right data to answer the right questions? So that's kind of the, you know, if we think about what we're trying to do in the environmental side is again, back to the materiality piece, is this the right data to answer material environmental questions? Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no, but at least we have data at our disposal. The DEI space, this is just a wide open space. And we start to get into issues around, um, you know, just something as simple as you know gender makeup in a company or what you know what is the um rates of employee retention and employee turnover and how do companies treat their workers not just uh, workers that are kind of within the walls of the company but how do they treat the surrounding communities where they work so there's a whole vast uh treasure trove of data out there but the issue is it's um it tends to be either very broad and not very deep or we might have data that's specific to a name, but it's not something that's scalable. And the problem with a lot of this data is, and this is really where it opens up to some interesting pure data science questions, um, it's, it's, a lot of it is derived from a survey, a lot of it has bias, a lot of it is incomplete. So there's a lot of these really thorny issues that if we're going to make something and you know kind of build an investment thesis around DEI data, uh, there's a whole host of just really fundamental questions around data integrity. Um, that, you know, lead us to believe that, you know, are these the right pieces of data that we should be using to answer the question? So um, in contrast to the climate piece, there's just, there are just so many fundamental issues around answering these questions around DEI that are, that are extremely important. But we're still very early innings in terms of just getting the right data to ask these questions. So I think there's a lot of, I hate to use the term low-hanging fruit, but there's a lot of, you know, I think very simplistic assumptions that we can take from data and try to build a thesis around that. But the data collection piece, and just removing a lot of these, you know, data integrity and privacy issues that are really are plaguing the entire data collection industry, um, we have to get that settled first before we do something more meaningful in that space. But this is just, you know, this is just very early days in a in a long game, and I think that I'm really excited about the things that are, you know, kind of in the years ahead of us in the DEI space.
0: Now, Michael, you bring up a couple of really interesting points about the data, because in the financial advisor community, which I was part of for 23 years, one of the big concerns is, are we using the right data? Where is it coming from, et cetera? So can you give us a little guidance on, the, on how you leverage data science and artificial intelligence in your analytical process?
1: Sure. So we do a couple of things. One, we have a team of data scientists that are um, inherently interdisciplinary. So, you know, and what I mean by that is when I started off kind of building data science teams, it was always really important to just find the top technical talent you can and kind of think that with the right talent, you'll be able to answer the questions that we want to answer with some of this data. And it turns out that um, at least in my experience, Um, Talent, of course, is important, but good talent are kind of table stakes, and it's really important to have a team of diverse perspectives. So we don't just have a bunch of software engineers or a bunch of electrical engineers sitting around a table. We have people from statistics and sociology and psychology and economics, as well as the hard sciences. So we're really attacking these problems and trying to understand these questions as domain experts, as well as data scientists and kind of bringing those pieces together together. without one or the other, there's always kind of a penetrating wall that you're just not going to be able to get through. And, you know, kind of bringing these pieces together and having them work towards the same goal, but with different perspectives. It allows us to develop, you know, develop some different insights that we wouldn't be able to generate otherwise. The second piece that I think is, is really interesting is we kind of leverage our network of external academic advisors who, you know, if we have a specific area, you mentioned DEI, um, you know, we'll work with faculty that they spend all day, every day, just thinking about these problems and thinking about problems in a way that we, as kind of practicing data scientists, might not. Uh, and they also point us to data sets that we might not have visibility towards. So um, it's really a nice uh, it, it's a nice balance of you know heads down computational approaches in terms of you know what more can we extract out of the data. But we're balancing that with that diverse group of perspectives as well as leveraging that external network. And uh, it's working for the kind of questions that we're trying to answer. Um, it's a really good combination.
0: Let's move on to a, a, a word that has been part of the ESG dialogue for a long time, and that is externalities. Uh, I'd like for you to offer our audience a couple of examples of externalities uh, that are important when it comes to explaining materiality and quantifying uh, data related to uh, externalities, what how, how do we go about that process, Michael? And what are they?
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because we I mean, basically, we you know we live in a world of externalities. That's what we're spending most of our day thinking about. And uh, I think one way to approach the externality question and i think there's probably just inherent bias in this when you think of externalities you usually think of at least i do i think of something that's negative right it's a cost it's some kind of a burden um and those are of course if you think about the spectrum externalities you think about emissions of course there are environmental externalities both financial and you know what might be related to pollution um so those are you know the majority of externalities but there's also positive externalities so when we think about how much do employees spend on training programs and development programs you know again back to the employee retention how does your employer retention influence company performance. So there are a lot of ways that we can look at both sides of the coin. And again, going back to what we started with, when we think about the total value framework, it is a holistic framework. So we're looking at both the negative and the positive externalities together. Some offset each other. And obviously, you know, you know, we kind of use this lens to frame where we see opportunities. But a lot of positive externalities, even what we're finding is even that there might be a relatively low, quote unquote, spend or a low, quote unquote, value attributed to that. But the scalability effects actually can lead to multiples. So we start to really, and again, this is where, you know, one thing that I I probably say a lot when I talk about data is smart data is going to trump big data any day of the week, right? So there's this mentality of just amassing more and more data just for the sake of acquiring. And while having more data is important it's really finding those thin slices of data that can generate alpha or can be a predictor of multiples or can be a predictor of a future potential favorable investment. Um, and again, doing that, it takes some time and it takes a lot of really deliberate um, approaches in terms of how we're structuring data, how we're thinking about the questions and what our outcome is. Uh, but those are the, you know, the things that we're trying to think of. And we try to put everything, when it comes down to externalities, really into that spectrum of, you know where does it fall on this, um, yeah, you know, the ability to better evaluate our investments both earlier and you know what is a a more concrete predictor of future success?
0: You know, I'm recalling, Michael, a conversation that I had probably three years ago with a fixed income asset manager in New York City who's very sophisticated and very good at what she does on the uh, just in the global fixed income markets. And one of the things that she said to me uh, during a podcast conversation was that, She had narrowed the material data points down to about a half dozen for each type of fixed income issuance that she was evaluating. But prior to that, she had to go through what she described as mountains of data to get to the point where she realized what those material issues really were. So you've got a very diverse team at engine number one and your members come together from a lot of different disciplines as you said and around shareholder activism is where you all came together if i remember correctly um how does that work how did that all happen how did your team find each other and and begin this whole process
1: well i think it's probably a combination of a a deliberate intent as well as some serendipity um so uh, yeah, the I won't give the origin story of the firm. There was actually a, an article published last week in Climate and Capital that really, I think, does a really nice job in kind of outlining how the firm developed um, in terms of the original vision of the founder and, and the, the founding team. Um, but one thing I think is, uh, and that, so there was, uh, just to go back, there, there, there's kind of this longstanding thesis behind the inception of, of Engine Number no. 1 that kind of weaved its way into what we're doing now. So this wasn't something that just came up overnight. This was you know, something that was developed and kind of germinated over time um, until the firm opened its doors. But going forward, um, I think one thing that is really, I think, very clear is the culture that we're trying to build is extremely, it's important to get the culture piece right. And if somebody wants to join number, Engine Number 1, you know, we're, we talked to a lot of people, we've grown quite a bit in the last year. If they're Trying to join for the wrong reasons um those uh i I think those applicants or those people that are interested in what we're doing we we tend to be able to weed those out pretty early and you know we're of course capitalists we're in financial services we want to generate returns but we still are a a team that all feel very strongly about the mission and you know again this mission of um you know, one of the things that our chairman talks about a lot is, uh, and this is a quote I love more than probably anything else that we say is, "You don't solve a problem by running away from it." Right. So, you know, we're not into divesting. We're into you know engaging and finding the right combination of data and skill sets and people to address problems that we feel need to be addressed while still generating returns. So, um, if people tend to you know be interested in what we're doing, but they don't kind of share both the capital side as well as they're not bought into the mission. Um, it's not going to work. So if you look at the people that we have here, you know everybody has some combination of both of those. and it really, uh, I think it it sets us up for a really great culture, not just internally, but as far as the message that we're trying to develop and spread externally. Um I think it's very well received if you believe in both sides of those, you know both sides of the equation.
0: Yes, michael, please. when when we post the program, uh, I'd really like to have the link to that climate capital article to share with our audience. I think a lot of people will be very interested in, in how the um, the organization developed and um, uh, and how you're working together. So, sure, I'd be happy to do that. Good, thank you very much. And tell us, please, how our listeners, our financial advisor and investor audience, can learn more about the work that you're doing at Engine Number no. One. And how can they get in touch with you about the topics that we've been discussing on today's program?
1: Sure, I mean the, everyone's first route is always to Google Engine Number One, and uh, which is great. But a lot of times when you Google Lunch Number One, most of the traction you're going to get is around our Exxon campaign, um, and that is one important, but it's just one component of our business. So um, obviously, if you want to go beyond that, um, you know we're on all the you know the, the social media outlets on you know LinkedIn and Twitter, and you can kind of follow. The things that we're doing but I, I, in terms of meeting with individuals i encourage people to you know kind of look at our firm and go on linkedin and reach out to individuals directly i'm always happy to talk with people that reach out and contact me that way um and again we're we want to talk about what we're doing there's obviously a lot that uh, we're excited about and a lot of things that are going to be coming in the next couple of years but you know there's certain things that we want to get out there and talk as, to as many people as we can so uh, we encourage people to reach out to us directly and and we're all happy to talk with people about our mission and what, what we have planned
0: Okay, great. Now, Michael, one other thing that I uh, didn't really have on a list of questions, but there's a lot of disruption going on in Europe uh, because of the, the war in Ukraine. And when you look at the the, um, the environmental, social, and governance aspects of the global economy now that have been complicated by two major events now, COVID and now the war in Ukraine in recent years. How has this changed the way that you as a data scientist are looking at the things that you collect and the things that are important on your uh, radar screen?
1: That's a great question, Paul. And I think uh, if anything, it's highlighted the importance of what we're doing, right? uh, These are things that you can't just stick the data into a machine and follow that and, and come out with your answer. I mean, we really need to think long and hard about the questions that we're trying to address. Um, sometimes we have the data to address those questions, sometimes we don't, but we really need to be critical about what is the outcome that we're thinking about. And, you know, not just, uh, if we think about it, the two that you mentioned were COVID and the war in Ukraine. Uh, and then another one came out recently, which is the the IPCC came out with another of their their long list of reports that highlighted um Some of the impacts around mitigation of climate change. So, we have kind of this confluence of factors that, I mean, all this stuff was important six months ago, a year ago, two years ago. But when we kind of look at the world around us today, uh, it's just really magnifying the importance of this kind of work and, you know, really the need to really get moving on this. So, um, if anything, it just serves as an accelerant and, you know, kind of a springboard to really double down on what we're doing. Because I think, again, not only is it important financially, but it's important. Economically, socioeconomically, it's important around just general human livelihood. I mean, this just, just touches the kind of issues that we're addressing, touch every facet of society. And uh, again, I mean, it's always important, but when we're kind of living through these times that we're living through now. It just highlights the importance of what we're doing.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much again, Michael Ferrari, Chief Science Officer and Chief Data Scientist at Engine Number One. And for our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.